I'm a big cranberry guy. Uh huh. I like the cranberry. I like I like, and then I like variations on cranberry. I like the cran apple. Uh huh. I dig it. I like the cran apple. All right, welcome back to another episode of the Laravel Podcast, your favorite podcast on the internet, and if it's not, it should be. I'm your host, Matt Stauffer. Guys, can you introduce yourselves? I'm Jeffrey Way. And I'm Taylor Otwell. We got a lot of fun things to talk about, as always. Um, hashtag SparkWatch is back on the plate again, so we'll talk about that in a minute. Also, that moss and why it's better to live in America if you want to run a business, uh, and some other stuff going on. But first of all, we have some new changes to Elixir. Um, Jeffrey, you wanted to talk about them, so can you share with us what's going on and what, what the... You asked some questions on Twitter the other day about some changes you're making. Can you just kind of uh, introduce us to that? Yeah, sure. N- nothing nothing overly fancy, no like huge breaking change, um, nothing like that, just a handful of things. Um, one, Elixir's switching over to uh, ES6, which is kind of cool. I, w- I, I was never sure how you do that for um, an NPM package. Like, how do you write ECMAScript 6, but then everyone gets served, you know, just regular code? And it looks like there's yeah. an easy way where you just compile it down with Babel, and then right before you publish it to NPM, um, it will automatically compile it for you, so you never end up in a situation where the users get the different compiled code than where you currently are. Anyways, that's annoying. Um, but that's that's done. That makes the code a bit cleaner. Another thing is, I'm just trying to clean up the dependencies a bit. Elixir is a really tough one because you need a good number of dependencies to make it just perfect out of the box, right? Mm-hmm. But the more dependencies you have, the longer it takes to install. So it, it's always this kind of awkward line you have to walk where it's like, like somebody said on Twitter the other day, um, you should have basically no dependencies at all other than SAS. And it's like, well, yeah, you could do that, but the reality is most people are doing way more than SAS. If I tell them install these seven different things uh, for a new project, it kind of defeats the purpose of how useful Elixir actually is. So Yeah, That's a, that is a tough line. Because everything you take out of the dependency tree is, it makes it faster to install, but then it's more work as well. Right. So on that line, I'm taking out uh, CoffeeScript support. You know, a lot more people used it a year ago or so when we launched it, but I'm just getting the feeling that it's more difficult to justify it uh, as a default at this point. So that's going to leave, that gets rid of a dependency. CoffeeScript will move to an extension. So if you do use CoffeeScript, you're good. Uh, You have to pull in. One extension, it's 30 seconds, and uh, you're back to how you were before. Another cool thing coming is I, I figured out a way to lazy load a bunch of the dependencies. So that means when you when you run Gulp, it's going to be like three times as fast as it was before. Actually, can I ask about that? Is, is that lazy loading a, um, like a pre-established thing or a tool you're using, or is that kind of some custom code you wrote? <laughs> no, it's, it's stupid, basic. It's calling a function. So oh, okay. I, it, this is really my fault. I should have thought of this. But basically, the way it works is when you set up um, your Gulp file, it basically loads all of the tasks, and every task declares its dependencies. So even if you're not using uh, Browserify, it actually will do require Browserify. And um, I didn't even think about that, and I didn't think it mattered that much. I thought it would be so fast. But it turns out, in some cases, it's actually pretty slow. Like, for example, the CSS compiler we use is, is slow. I had to swap that out with something way faster. 
But anyways, now it doesn't load any of that. It will only load the dependency once the task actually gets triggered. So you don't have to pay for Browserify support if you're not using it. Um, it's ridiculous I didn't have that before. This is why I use Elixir instead of other Gulp projects, because I don't, I don't have the time to learn all those things. So I just incrementally get the benefit of the improvements you add to Elixir. Yeah, so, it's rid- I can't believe there isn't another project like Elixir. Like, and it, what's weird is there's there's a group of people who don't even understand why it exists. They're always mm-hmm. like, just write Gulp, you know? And it's like, have you done this before? Have you, like, copied a Gulp <laughs> file across multiple projects and spent hours researching how to compile SAS and do auto-prefixing and, and all that junk? It sucks. See, I, I, have a, I have an opinion, and we've discussed this before, but I think the louder someone is with, you know, those opinions on Twitter, the less likely it is that they actually maintain any real projects. Yeah, I, I think you're totally right. Anyways, long story short, lots of updates. Uh, You can now disable notifications if you want. Lots of uh, little versioning fixes. Um, Not overly interesting, but there's basically a release candidate at this point. It should be available in the next week. Uh, The only breaking change, like I said, is before uh, we were using a CSS minification tool called CSS Nano. Uh, and it turns out it's so dang slow, like ridiculously slow. If you have a massive CSS file, some people were saying it took 10 seconds to uh, to minify. So we're swapping that out with another one that's like infinitely faster. And the only difference is, um, obviously, your configuration options will be slightly different. But 10 second fix, and uh, that'll do it. I hadn't intended to actually talk about this, but I think... Uh I've been actually recommending to a lot of people that you use Elixir on non-Laravel projects. And I think that people might kind of understand it as a general concept, but maybe not understand just how easy it is. Uh, I wrote something in the Titan blog recently about using, um, getting started with Vueify, uh, which is like a Vue.js tool to, to basically kind of get a JSX type syntax for your view files where your JavaScript and your CSS and your, um, your templates are all in the same file. Um, and I said, well, I, I could spend a whole bunch of this blog post teaching you how to get the tooling set up, or you could just use Elixir. So um, I'll, I'll link it in the show notes, but check out just how simple it is on any project. It doesn't have to be a Laravel project. So every project we do, we use Elixir, and we're actually converting older projects to use Elixir. The, we got an old code editor project, and we've got a whole bunch of craft CMS projects. They all use Elixir. Uh, even a, word, a couple WordPress themes we had to build for something we use Elixir just because it's just the best there is out there it's just you know we just use it for everything and and all of our um asset basically kind of source trees of where the source is and where this file lives it's just all the same in all our projects and that's something people can't talk about enough or i can't focus on enough um yeah it's and we'll we'll do oh go ahead it, it's it's a perfect example of convention over configuration it's like mm-hmm. yeah you could you could have different file paths to your views for every project but just stick with the conventions and elixir can make it so much easier and then about like the viewify it's like yeah if there's a, a Vueify extension for Elixir. If you didn't use that, you have to know literally eight or nine different dependencies that you have to pull in to compile everything down. It's it's absurd how how crazy that world can get if you don't have a little wrapper uh, to make it easier. Yeah, and I mean that 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 article was basically like I don't I don't want to say it's unnecessary. It's a good article, but I basically said here's why Vueify is great and here's what it looks like. Uh, the setup was almost nothing because I just basically said pull in Elixir, pull in you know Laravel Elixir Vueify, and there was one other thing or something like that. And it's just you're just set up, and that's just I, I think that I can't emphasize strong and strongly enough how important it is to be able to get tools like this, whether it's Vue or Vueify or anything else with just a line of code. Like I've written a lot of those gulp files and I've copied those gulp files from one another. And before that I wrote a lot of gulp uh, grunt files. And before that it was, um, what was the Ruby? What's the Ruby one? Um, um, oh my gosh. What was that? 
No. Make. It was um No, there was Guard. Guard. Yep. Guard. We actually guard Do you guys the... remember Taylor, do you remember we talked about doing Guard with Laravel like years ago? Yeah, gosh, I forgot about that. Right when the idea of like a build tool for Laravel came about, we were like, well, maybe we should use Guard because that was really popular at the time. Well, Jeffrey, you had a guard, a Laravel guard package. I had it on a couple projects for a while. Yeah, that that was right at the tail end, and then right after that, it was like build tools became yep everywhere, <laughs> ubiquitous. You know, so yep. the world's a lot different since then. Uh, so one one last thing before we move on that I had forgotten, I realized I wasn't going to share about, but I realized it's a good time is that um, we kind of soft launched launched Jigsaw this week, which was um, it's a Adam Wathen has done it. It's a Titan project, but Adam wrote it, which is basically a static site generator using um, blade templates and using Elixir. And we'll do a big write up in the Titan blog later, kind of introducing why we think it's valuable and stuff. But again, it's the same kind of thing of like you you get blade convenience for writing your content and elixir convenience for making your uh, creating your assets and it was just like i want that on every project that's why we did jigsaw because we were building the the titan website and we're like well it doesn't need to be a laravel app but we want blade and we want you know elixir how, how can we bring that in it's just that valuable so all right so spark uh spark's got a lot of development spark watch we have we have a, an announced launch date and uh and we know that you're actually still busy behind the scenes adding a whole bunch of crazy new features so before we talk about some of those features and some of the stuff that's been going on with VAT and taxes taylor what's the timeline what's the launch date what's the deal with spark watch you got a price now tell us everything so uh, yesterday i announced that spark will tentatively be released april 19th that's actually sort of a generous date on my end i was going to do april 12th but decided to give myself another week to um, record some videos for laracast make sure the documentation is really good and really spark is pretty feature complete right now but uh, the past few days i've been i've just been throwing in like a few icing on the cake features like some pretty graphs for your revenue over time and um, cleaning up the user profiles on the developer back end just sort of like Stuff that's nice to have, but stuff that wasn't really like part of the core feature set when I first set out to write Spark, but still stuff that's pretty cool. Yeah, the the reporting layer is is pretty awesome. Uh, that's one of those things like I had to build that uh, for Laracast. And once again, like when you have to do these extra things, you always kind of cheat a little bit and you take the, the quickest possible path. So it's nice that you're actually taking the time to to make this look really nice and pretty. Um, so So for anyone listening, it's like you now have graphs for like correct me if I'm wrong, Taylor, but like total, total revenue, total users, total um, monthly recurring revenue, all that stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah. Monthly recurring revenue, yearly recurring revenue, daily volume, which is sort of how much money has come in that particular day. Um, And then also new registrations, you know, new users over time. And then of course you also have not in graph form, but in text form, you have how many users are subscribed to each plan, how many users are trialing each plan. So you can kind of get an idea for which, which of your plans is the most popular and which maybe isn't as popular. Yeah, it's cool because there are dedicated like tools that you can pay for on a a monthly subscription that only provide that feature. So if this is just something you're tacking on, um, that that's pretty awesome. So how exactly does this work? So, it's kind of an interesting story behind this whole feature because you have to have like a performant way to get these numbers, obviously, without hitting the Stripe API and pulling down every transaction that's ever happened in your system. So basically how it all started was it kind of ties into the whole tax system where 
it's going to sound really roundabout, but I promise this all relates. But in Europe, there's actually a regulation that your invoices have to be sequentially numbered. Like, you know, let's just say one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And if they're not, then tax authorities seem to look at it like you're hiding revenue, so to speak. You know, they want to see every invoice sequentially. Um, and so I built that into Spark where you could have sequential invoice numbers. But in order to do that, I had to capture the incoming charges from Stripe on the webhook controller and then store every um, charge in an invoices table so that I could know sequentially when they occurred. Because the Stripe in, the Stripe invoice IDs are kind of just like a random string. So those aren't really going to work. And so in Spark, you have an invoices table that's you know just auto-incrementing ID, the amount, total amount and the amount of tax and the country that the person was in at the time. Um, so using that table, you can do some pretty interesting things. So like then I just thought it would be really easy to use that for a really performant way to track revenue over time. So I built basically a really simple artisan command that you can hook in nightly on your Spark installation that just takes a snapshot of what's the monthly recurring revenue today, what's the total volume today, how many new users were there. And it basically uses the invoice table for a lot of that because it has a really simple log of every transaction. And then it stores that into a performance indicators table for each day. It has like a daily entry on that table for monthly recurring revenue, yearly recurring revenue, and so on. So that makes it super simple to plot a daily graph of your monthly recurring revenue and all that. And even to compare it like this day against this time last year's monthly recurring revenue and stuff like that makes it really simple to do all those calculations. Yeah, that's very cool because I think what a lot of people a lot of people forget. Oh, you can you can create a table for this, you know. So I think a lot of people end up trying to do this incredibly complex SQL query that that fetches everything and then groups them according to the day, and then you just have a, a ridiculous database query trying to figure out you know all of these uh, signups per day or or all that crap. So yeah, just like create a new table. Uh, I assume you're using the scheduler tool for that. Yeah, Laravel scheduler. Just, I mean, it's a really simple thing where you just say like schedule um, command um, spark, whatever the command name is, nightly or whatever. And it's just, it really is super fast and super easy. And it makes the charts, you know, obviously really quick to load because there's no, they don't have to do any calculations at all. Um, it just pulls the data strict directly from the database and throws it in the chart. So it's actually really, really fast. Scheduler is so good. We forget like how it's so good. it was like a nightmare back in the day. I for whatever reason I could never remember the sequence for a, for the cron jobs. You know, it's ridiculous. I should know it, but I always ended up researching. Nobody could remember them. And then you'd have ever. the ones where it was like two slash ten, and you're like, what? Two divided by ten? What was that again? I'd always have to get a refresher because you you don't write the cron jobs enough. You know, you usually have just a handful per project, and then you never touch them again. So uh, yeah, scheduler is so good. Yeah, so that was a that was a really cool feature that came about in a really roundabout way um, with all that tax mess. Which tax in Europe is it's really a mess, and I hope it never becomes that way in the U.S. <laughs> Do you think you've cracked it though? Yeah, so basically in Europe you have what's called this value added tax or a VAT tax, where starting January first of twenty fifteen, so last year there was um, new regulations that you have to charge tax based on where the customer is, where the customer is purchasing your stuff, not where you live. And that was basically the idea behind that was basically to create this level playing field because businesses could incorporate in a country that had very forgiving tax rates and, you know, get a big break. But with the new regulations, since you have to charge where the customer is, it sort of levels all that out where you can't really, 
you know, be in a tax haven, so to speak, with your European business. And so the tricky part is there's, um, you know, you have to know where the user is and you have to prov- you have to prove that that's accurate. So when a user first signs up for your app, um, you actually have to have two forms of proof um, for why you're charging them the tax rate that you're charging them. And so one of them can be the declared, you know, just billing address of the customer. But when you're using Stripe, we can actually conveniently pull the bank's origin country on your credit card. So that gives us a second proof of where you are. And if those two don't match, um, Spark will, you know, have a validation error that your card origin country doesn't match your declared billing country. Um, so using Stripe makes that really easy. And then we can store that. And in the invoices table, we store that as well because just because they have to, um, or just because they were in, say, um, Denmark at the time of one purchase doesn't mean they didn't move to Great Britain a year later. So we store the country on every invoice um, so that we know, you know, we can prove why we charge them the tax that we charge them. It's awful people actually have to worry about writing that stuff. Not only that, but you're supposed to store all that for 10 years um, to keep records for 10 years. And your invoices, like I said, have to be certain ways. Like there's regulations around invoices where they have to be sequentially numbered. You know, the tax has to be listed. And then there's a layer on top of it where if you're a business, say I'm I'm running Forge in Denmark and a business in Great Britain wants to buy Forge, you don't have to charge them tax, but they have to give you a valid VAT identifier number that proves that they are a actual business. And then you don't have to charge them any VAT tax. And if you're selling certain things like um, I think maybe education or nonprofit, they have a discounted VAT rate. So there's all kinds of rules, but... How that's implemented in Spark, um, sorry to go on a long tangent here, but how that's implemented in Spark is we do gather the two forms of location, but then all you have to do is implement the tax percentage method on your user model, which is already a cashier method for years. I mean, that's been around for a long time. Um, And that basically will set the tax percentage on Stripe for how much Stripe is going to charge them additional tax. And so within that method, you can use whatever means you want to get your tax rate. So there's all kinds of ways you can get your VAT tax rate. Some people call like a third-party API that keeps their tax rates current or whatever, and you just pass them the country that you need the tax rates for. Uh, Some people use a package that has the tax rates kind of hard-coded, which there's a Laravel package that has that. But basically, that's up to you. And the nice thing about that is it doesn't just limit it to European VAT because like Canada has um, taxes they have to charge on digital goods. And if the U.S. ever had a tax system like that, which has come up in Congress before, um, but stalled out where you have to charge tax based on whatever state the person's in or whatever, whatever county, then that would make it work for any country, essentially. And then even further, there's in Spark, there's a billing address updated event where anytime the customer updates their billing address, Spark will automatically recall that tax percentage method to get an updated tax percentage and update the Stripe subscription automatically with the new tax percentage. So it kind of keeps all that in sync. And really all you have to worry about, um, long story short, is making sure your tax percentage method is implemented and returns the tax percent for whatever the country is. So as long as you do that, everything sort of just works and the invoices are sequentially numbered and the tax is displayed on the invoices and blah, blah, blah. And sorry, tangent continues. Um, <laughs> on, on the invoices table, we actually store the amount of tax per given transaction. So at the end of the year, you need to total up You know how much tax 
did I gather for this country? It makes it really easy to run a really simple query against your invoices table to sum up all your taxes for Denmark or for Great Britain or whatever. So that makes it really simple as well at the end of the year. Man, that's overwhelming. So, all right, what is the consensus? If I am a U.S. company, like for Laracast, do I have to worry about that at all? And like in terms of the letter of the law, they want you to do that. But I don't really know of anyone that's actually doing that because I don't think, I think the consensus is that they don't really have any power or or even the a means to enforce any of that. And the, I don't think the IRS, they would be really interested in exporting U.S. tax dollars over to various European countries when they could be gathering it themselves. But uh, the consen- I've never heard of anyone implementing it in the U.S. And every company I know just ignores it and kind of gives it the middle finger, I think, because it's yeah, such a yeah, mess. Yeah, me too. But I've had a lot, of, a lot of customers say, like, no, you're breaking the law. You have to be doing this according to the law. And yeah, it's like, well, I don't know anyone who actually is in the United States. So I, I wasn't sure legally how that, how that plays out. I just Googled um, Rachel Andrews VAT because I know she's been talking about VAT a lot lately. And I came across this article, my site will be changing all because of VAT from a guy named Chris Lima, who, if I'm reading right, is in San Diego. And he basically said, I'm going to stop selling things online because of VAT. So there's at least some Americans, but this was December 2014. I don't know if he's since realized, oh, I was wrong. It doesn't matter. But but I agree, though. I've never heard of anybody else talking about... Yeah, it's pretty wild. I mean, it's definitely... It's not insurmountable, but it's definitely enough of a um, deterrent that it would it would make you not want to write your idea or your startup idea, I think, if you're in the EU. Now, I mean, the whole kind of narrative behind Spark is we want to make it easy for you to, to start your idea without feeling overwhelmed or without being uh, discouraged by all the stuff you'll have to do just to get started. So it was really important to me to have at least some mechanism to support various tax systems because obviously Europe is a major part of the world. (laughs) A significant amount of uh, Laravel users live in Europe. But also, you know, lots of other countries have that and who knows if others will in the future. So Supporting that, I think, was a big deal for basically opens up Spark to European customers because if that wasn't supported, and um, people still may want to do this even if it is supported, is you know you have to use something like Stripe Atlas, which is a really interesting thing where Stripe is launching this new kind of program where they incorporate a U.S. corporation for you and you actually run your business as a U.S. corporation even if you live somewhere else in the world. Which is really nice because uh, you know the taxes are a lot simpler. I, I presume you don't have to worry about VAT tax and all that. But yeah, so the option is there. You know whether people choose to still um, use something like Stripe Atlas is up for them. But I think it's it, Spark makes it a lot easier to do all your VAT stuff. That was probably really boring to U.S. customers, but uh, yeah, for Europe people, it's probably you know uh, music to their ears. I have so many friends who said they never bothered. Uh, starting a company, like you said before, because it's it's just it's so complicated. It, there's you don't even want to go down that path. Even you explaining it was a little overwhelming to me because I've never done it. So, yeah, I mean, even even if you're in the U.S., writing all that Stripe code is really a pain, and keeping track of all that. So, it, anything added on top of that just is that much worse. Because <laughs> yeah, it's so true. Stripe makes it so much easier than the way it used to be, and it still is kind of a pain in the butt to do. So it's like you need Stripe, which is a layer on top of the the old way, and then Cashier is a layer on top of Stripe. It's amazing how many little abstractions we make to make this stuff somewhat uh, usable. It's crazy. Yeah, it really is pretty wild. Um, I, you know, I would say maybe the U.S. customers have have you know not had to think about that kind of stuff and and taxes and VAT in specific, but 
like even just the stuff we were covering before that, like I, I run a SAS and have run several and the amount of work, like, I'll just tell you about like the, before things like Barometrics and Chart Mogul came out, um, the, the amount of work that it took me to both figure out that the math I needed to be doing just to get like those basic analytics, let alone later being able to pull out like things about the history of, you know, invoices and stuff like that, the, the ability to easily generate um, uh, graphs like that. I mean, we're rewriting all of our billing code right now for Karani because Braintree is changing. And, and in order to stay PCI compliant, you got to update to their latest SDK. And so we're upgrading it to use Cache Tree uh, because if you're going to do changes, why not get in a Cache Tree? Cache Tree, if you don't know, is um, the thing that, Larav- or that, that Taylor wrote, which is basically Laravel. Uh, yeah, Cashier Braintree. Cashier for Braintree. Cashier for Braintree. I don't think it was ever actually released as Cash Tree. I think that was just the code name that I used to share it with okay. you. <laughs> Got it. So we're using Cashier for Braintree. Um, and and in, in doing that, I'm remembering just how much work I had to do for a lot of these things. And and I know that I've been kind of like just kind of going pitch heavy on Spark. But like just just this level of analytics alone, just these graphs alone took me literally weeks to write. And you might look at it being like, oh, well, I could reproduce that in less. Well, maybe once you've seen it, you could reproduce it in less. It's still going to take you quite a few days up to a week to write something like that. But when you're doing it for the first time and you need to figure out well, which graph to use and which math do I use for those graphs, like just that one feature that just got added right, right now, like like we're talking about weeks of development work. And so when we get to the pricing part of it, like I've told Taylor this before, but he should be charging way more <laughs> for Spark. And I told him that about Forge too. You should be charging way more. Uh, it's good for all of us that he's not, right? But like this, the ridiculous amount of value that's coming out of this thing is really blowing my mind. Yeah, it would definitely take you weeks to write on your own. And with with Braintree in particular was kind of interesting. There, it was kind of frustrating because some things were better about Braintree, I feel like, compared to Stripe, and other things were way worse. And so that made it really kind of annoying. So like one thing I really liked about Braintree was, um, of course, it supports PayPal, which is good for international customers, but they have this concept of transaction, which a transaction is an actual charge against a credit card. And Stripe kind of has this dual thing where they have invoices and then they have payments and they're not the same thing. Um, just because you have an invoice doesn't mean you have a payment, and it does create confusion sometimes. But yeah, it would definitely take weeks to implement on your own. So yeah, it should save a lot of time, and I'm really excited to to get it out there. I really wish Stripe would add some PayPal option. I, I can imagine that's probably like a big conflict of interest for them because of Stripe versus Braintree, but it's it's a major hurdle for me. I agree it's against the PayPal terms of service or something like that. For those who don't know, um, PayPal brought or bought Braintree, so that's that's why you get easy PayPal integration into Braintree, and you're probably never going to get it into Stripe. Yeah, so. exactly. So major conflict of interest, but from the user's point of view, it really sucks. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, it's the yeah. maybe the one big Stripe complaint I have is that uh, it makes it a lot more complicated. So uh, before we move on, last thing about Spark uh, pricing. You, you also revealed what the, I think the final or not final, but what's the deal with pricing right now? Yeah, I said that the price will start at $99. And um, that's kind of the introductory price, you know, and it may go up um, a few weeks later. But this is kind of the intro sale price for people just getting into it um, at version 1.0 is $99. And that includes all minor uh, version updates so like 1.1 of course if you bought 1.0 you're gonna get 1.1 for free and the licensing situation is 99 dollars is per launch site now you have to pay 99 dollars up front just to get the code so you can't really download spark for free and try it 
Um, but you only have to buy a license for things you actually launch. So if you have 10 ideas, you only have to really buy one license and you can sort of play with all 10 ideas on Spark. And as long as you only launch one of those, that's fine. If you launch two, you need two licenses. So it's basically whatever you have in production is what you need a license for. But as long as you're just tinkering, you know, you don't have to buy a whole new license every time you have an idea, so to speak. And how it works is once you buy a license on the website, there's a Spark CLI tool that has a register command. So you just do like Spark register and then paste in your token, your API token that the Spark website gives you. And then you can just do like Spark new project and it will hit the API, make sure that you have a valid license and you basically create a new Laravel project, kind of like the Laravel new blog command. There's a Spark new whatever. And they're sort of work the exact same way, except uh, the Spark one hits the API with your token. And then there's also a Spark update update command, which will validate your token, download the latest Spark installation, um, update any views um, that it, it can update that you haven't modified, and then basically replace your old Spark installation with the new Spark code. So that's pretty handy too as well for really easy updates. I like it. I, I like the idea of buy it once so that it's not open source. You know, you have to pay money to get it. Um, but then, or not, not so it's not open source, but so that it's not as if just anybody can get it. But once you buy it, you can play around with a lot of ideas locally. I know that a lot of the CMSs have, have, a, have a similar kind of idea where, you know, you got to pay to get the code. But once you have that code, you can, you know, get started many times. And often with the CMSs, this is, you know, less the case for Spark. But like when it go, it's time to go to prod, um, by that point, the client will be able to buy a license and then the client's paying for the license. So you as a developer only had to buy that code once in order to get started so yeah i like that a yeah, lot you can kind of pass the cost on at that point mm -hmm. all right two last things before we move on uh for the day uh first one dash so there was this kind of big hullabaloo uh when text expander recently pulled a php storm and basically shared that they're going to be changing their one-time purchase model which was uh you'd, you'd pay between 20 or 30 dollars for the app but they also had a it was a um they also have like an ios app and so some people were ending up basically paying you know 40 50 bucks every time they basically bought it for multiple devices um and then you'd have to upgrade them every year or every other year or something like that and they said we're just going to move to a subscription model and if i understand correctly you pay four or five dollars a month and you basically get it on all your devices and they all sync together and talk together nicely and a lot of people have been complaining saying you know hey that makes a little more sense for for adobe maybe or makes a little more sense for uh, one password because uh, we care about the sync, you know, because uh, text expander, you could just sync with Dropbox prior. And also you're adding a whole bunch of new features and, and the text expander, the, the cost is just too much. And there's a conversation happening about whether or not that's actually true. But one thing that came out that was interesting for me is that um, Jeffrey said, well, I don't use text expander. I use Dash. And I was like, I, I can't find this Dash you're talking about. I use Dash for API documentation, but you must be talking about some different app. And he said, no, it does snippets. So Jeffrey, can you tell us about what, what how you use Dash for snippets and what it takes to do it? Yeah, it's pretty weird. Nobody knows about it. So Dash is like a, an API documentation GUI. But it turns out that they also have a snippet manager that nobody knows about. And what's weird is it's really very good. In fact, I think it's better. You know, I have I don't really have a problem with what Text Expander is doing. Uh, my only issue would be it's only four dollars a month, but the reality is we all have so many subscriptions already. It's like, do yep. I really wanna do I want another one for snippet management? That's I think where most people are coming from. It's like we're overwhelmed with subscriptions. And this is coming from yep. somebody who has a subscription site. So um anyways, Dash has a, a text expander tool that I think is 
better than Text Expander itself. It, it's a lot simpler. It still has all the same stuff where you have fill-ins. It has tab stops. Um, it has basically everything you would want. It has a little menu bar tool where you can quickly search for everything. But nobody knows about it. And uh, I think you can basically use it for free even. Uh, there, there's a free version. There's also a paid version. But I could be wrong. I think the free version has all of that functionality in you don't have to pay for anything. I could be wrong on that. Either way, uh, it's very, very cheap. And uh, if you're looking for an alternative, give it a shot. And if you've never used one of these, basically what it is is you have a keyboard combination um, where, for example, if you type these you know, four letters, uh, like uh, I'm trying to remember what one of my... Oh, so my, one of mine is um, often you'll prefix those letters with like a comma or a semicolon. So it's something you won't normally type. So if I type semicolon E-M-L... Um, it'll uh, recognize that anywhere. It'll recognize that it'll delete those four letters and then it'll put my email address in there or something like that. And so you can get those four code snippets you use common, commonly or URLs or responses, whatever. You just basically, all the things that you type on a regular basis, um, you program in there and then you just create little shortcuts and it's listening using um, OSX's uh, accessibility settings. It's listening to everything you ever type and basically makes it really easy to have these shortcuts. And so Text Expander was like the first one. They've been around for a while and uh, apparently Alfred does it and there's, I guess, like five or six others, um, including Keyboard Maestro and a couple others. Um, but if you go to basically the snippets section in Dash, you can just create a shortcut and that shortcut expands to type certain things. And and so it seems like kind of all the functionality is there. So I'm going to try it out. Um, also put some links in the show notes to Dash and to Text Expander's billing change announcement. But I, when I heard that, I was like, I had no idea Dash could do that. So I wanted to make sure everybody heard about that. Yeah, I think it works even better. I don't know. I would try to use Text Expander and sometimes it just wouldn't work. And then the expansion itself would always be a little funky where it felt like there was like a half second delay and then it would play this expanding sound. Uh, with Dash, it's just instant, like there's nothing there. It's really good if you are if you run a business. So, for example, I get emails all the time, unfortunately, about uh, canceling. It, you know, it's amazing, just as a rant, it is so easy to cancel Laracast or anything else. Just It's exactly where you would think it would be, but I still get emails all the time going, how do I cancel? And it's like, well, it's in the customer support section, or go to your account page, and it's going to be right there. Um, anyways, rant over. But yeah, when I get those emails... Um, I have a snippet of plus cancel, and then it just tells him exactly how to do that. So I have it for every possible common question you could get. Like students sometimes want coupons, so I have a snippet that asks for their um, university student ID so I can give them a coupon. You know, that stuff really saves you a huge amount of time. Outgoing question. What is the best fruit juice? I'm a big cranberry guy. Oh yeah, I like the cranberry. I like I like, and then I like variations on cranberry. I like the cran apple. Uh huh. I dig it. I like the cran apple. I'm a fan. No, <laughs> I think I might just go with like a good like every once in a while you get a perfect orange juice. It's almost impossible to find, yeah. but every once in a while, like if you're at a restaurant, you get this big glass of sugary orange juice. I never realized as a kid that juice is just covered in sugar, and it's actually <laughs> it's not terrible that great for you. It. I grew <laughs> up thinking awful. like, wow, this is like liquid health. And uh, you find out, no, there's yeah. like tons of sugar, almost as much as a regular Coke. It's um, it's crazy. What about well, you, Matt? So I, I live in Florida, but I didn't grow up in Florida. So growing up, I liked orange juice a lot. I had that same problem. And I drink a couple glasses of it a day, and uh, I don't think it contributed too much to my health. I think I might have said either, you know, cranberry mix, because we would buy all those like organic cranberry, blueberry, cranberry, whatever ones. Um, but grapefruit, I feel grapefruit juice, I think is underappreciated. I don't know if I could drink it every day, 
but I think it's like, it's a little tart, right? It doesn't have that sweetness quite so much and you feel healthy. But then I moved to Florida and I get fresh orange juice like on the regular and now I don't think anything else can compare. But we, I, I was actually thinking about it because we got that, um, the, the freezer stuff where you buy like the little can from the freezer and mix it up um, the other week because like we're trying to be all frugal and stuff and it was awful. It's really like, bad, it, isn't it? it? Oh my gosh, I can't believe I drank that my whole childhood. I did It's too. really bad. I did too. It's like, uh, what's that orange stuff that we grew up in? Not Tang. Oh, uh, Sunny Delight. Sunny Delight. It tastes, that, that, that freezer stuff tastes like Sunny Delight to me now. It's funny because their uh, phrase was always Sunny Delight straight from Florida. And it's like, no, yeah. this is not Florida orange juice. <laughs> what this is, is Sunny Delight? <laughs> oh, it's like, I mean, I know oh, what it drink, is, but what is know. it? <laughs> drink. Oh, I want to Google that. Sunny Delight. I, I, I wonder, would yeah, say yeah, exactly. Drink. Orange, orange drink. And they might not be talking about the, the, the source, but more just the color. Sunny D. All right. Well, it was, uh, oh, it's an orange colored drink that literally just say an orange colored drink. They don't even mention that it actually has oranges or anything. It's probably in it, 0% so. juice. <laughs> probably is. Oh, our childhoods. We're all alive still, right? Yeah, we uh, made it. I- ingredient, ingredients, water, high fructose corn syrup, and less than 2% concentrated juices. Less than 2% is juice that's crazy so healthy it's main ingredients are water and corn syrup that is so crazy this is why we have cancer okay um well guys it was a pleasure talking to you as always look forward to talk to you next time and i'll see y'all later all right see you